During the bear market, scams really trend down. In fact, it's one of the most, um, it's the main crime category that actually moves with the market when you compare it to other types of crime, which are pretty much what we call price agnostic. So as scamming has gone down, we've seen scammers being forced to adapt by adopting this um, pig butchering approach where rather than just waiting for people to come to them, they'll be really proactive in finding their victims. They will reach out to people through a variety of ways. Romance scams is one of the biggest types of pig butchering where someone will create a fake relationship with someone and lure someone into a feeling that, hey, this is my maybe my relationship. And then they'll ask for crypto and then they'll kind of go, go MIA. Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. Today, we're doing something a little different. Um, I am talking to Kim Grauer, who is the head of research at Chainalysis. Chainalysis is a blockchain forensics firm. So that what that means is they are really good. They're like cyber sleuthing. They're going and using the public blockchain records um, to figure out what happens when you get rugged or if there's um, a scam or what North Korean hackers might be doing in terms of trying to launder um, the, the, the funds that they steal. Um, it's a fascinating part of the crypto world, in my opinion. Um, so what Chainalysis has been doing for six years is putting out a crime report where they kind of synthesize um, everything and, and break it down into categories like um, money laundering and scams and um, pump and dump and, and all the the crazy stuff that we all hear about and read about in the news um, far too often. In light of the 2022 crime report, uh, Kim agreed to come on and talk me through it all. So we get into um, some great, uh, interesting scams, uh, one of which is called a pig butchering. Um, so you're going to want to stick around for that. And we also get into um, uh, one that's it's called Oracle Manipulation, uh, where uh, Somebody stole $117 million roughly um, from the Mango Protocol last year and uh, came out publicly and said that he had done it and that he was simply um, obeying the protocol's rules. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that and we'll talk about what law enforcement thought about that um, sort of uh, explanation. So without any further ado, let's get to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Hey, Kim, how are you doing? Great to see you again. Hey, nice to see you too. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, this one is going to be a little bit different um, of, of a decent people podcast. Rather than kind of jump into your background and where you came from to get into crypto, we're going to kind of jump into the Chainalysis uh, 2022 crime report, which is full of awesome topics um, like scams and um, money laundering and uh, all sorts of, of nefarious stuff. Uh, so uh, Kim, you guys uh, again have done an amazing job. This is a 109 page report. Um, I highly recommend everybody listening to go check it out. You can download it for free. Um, so Kim, thanks a lot and, and great job on this report. Thank you so much for saying that. You can, I live in the report for so long that when you kind of release it, you're, you kind of, it's your baby. You get a little bit nervous. So it's really nice to hear that you enjoyed it and found it useful. I did. And I wanted to say it's actually really well written. Um, and I, I don't say this about a lot of things because a lot of times they're not, but whoever has the lead writing gig on this one was, was very clear, very concise, and, and just really um, 
very well written from page one to page 109. So that, that was a pleasure. That that's all Henry. Henry is our is our writer. He is an incredible writer. I keep telling him, when are you going to go write your memoir in like the Pacific Northwest? But <laughs> but yeah, he's a he's a great writer. Really knows how to communicate complex topics to a general audience. Yeah, he did that very well. So keep him around because that's a that's a skill. Let's jump into it. Even though there was an all-time high in 2022 of $20.6 billion in crypto crime, uh, that represented only 0.24% of all crypto activity. So that's something you and I have talked about before, and I thought it's a good sort of context to set this conversation into um, because I think a lot of people uh, who are crypto skeptics just sort of dismiss it as nothing but scams and and fraud um but here you know it's less than one percent uh and we're talking about all the categories that we're going to dive into um and and we've talked about that before but can you just give me a little bit of background on that and how you see that less than one percent sort of you know uh in the bigger picture here yeah, you're you're certainly right that a lot of non-crypto people have this preconception around how much criminal activity is happening on the blockchain. And to be honest, I don't quite know why that is so hard to fight. This is our sixth crime report, and we've consistently put out numbers around legitimate use cases of crypto, and uh, there's no equivalent data for how much crime is happening with cash. So it's quite a persistent narrative that I I would I would, you know, it's one of those things I want to have like a bar conversation with someone trying to dissect why it is that people have such strong preconceptions about cryptocurrency and its use cases when they're not in the industry, but when it comes to this specific number, this is something that it's kind of one of the crucial numbers that we put out each year. And it's what we're seeing is that we can calculate how much criminal activity is happening by by just by nature of what Chainalysis does. And I'll give a little bit of, of a quick background on that. Chainalysis ingests blockchain. So we we get blockchain data. And crucially, what we do though is we name, we associate the addresses that are transacting on the blockchain with named services. And that allows us to create kind of a phone book of cryptocurrency activity. And that's great for So businesses. can I jump in just for a sec? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, please. So you mean, you know the, the Coinbase um, deposit address, correct? And other, like, is that, that's what you're talking about? There are um, companies or individuals have publicly said, this is my address, right? And you don't have to do that. It can be pseudonymous, but other folks do have to disclose their, um, uh, their crypto wallet address. Is that, that, and that's what you mean, right? So you can kind of map out some of the territory? Yeah, the ways that we go about it, we employ several different heuristics. It's not just about publicly listed addresses. There's other things under the hood that allow us to do this. But that is essentially right. Any service that deals with cryptocurrency controls cryptocurrency addresses. And our business is to say who controls what addresses. Yep. And I noticed you guys are very careful. You don't usually publicly disclose that. Um, but what you but you obviously behind the scenes know what you're doing and, and can trace things. Um, 
but in your reports, you'll say that money laundering happens on centralized exchanges most like you know most often, um, but you don't say, and these are the centralized exchanges. We don't. We 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 don't do that. We um we're interested in the trends and uh, raising awareness about the the trends that are happening, but we don't give away information about individuals or individual services unless they're they've given us their approval or there's a real reason to do so just because we don't want to be in the business of kind of like throwing people under the bus or doxing people i mean we work closely with services behind closed doors when they're when when it's um when it's appropriate but yeah we we don't do that in our public reports yeah and that's a really interesting point and one i'd want to emphasize is, is you said in the traditional financial world, there's no analog to this because it's the, the transparency in the financial world, the fiat, US dollar-based or euro-based, whatever, doesn't exist like this, where on a blockchain, everything is publicly viewable. Um, so I think that's something that people should really keep in mind. And I, I was thinking about it and I, about kind of this, the skeptic argument that I, this is all for, for crime and stuff. And I, the only thing that I could think of is that all the scams and, and, and frauds get you know widely reported, um, and so that you know that can kind of take over the narrative sometimes. Um, like in the fall, you know, with FTX and and OFAC before that with Tornado Cash, it was like a drumbeat of really bad negative news. Um, and then on the other hand, when a transaction successfully goes through, or you know, I'm using a DeFi protocol to get some interest, uh, that's not news, you know, but that's the vast majority, like more than 99% of what's happening. So I, I guess it's just maybe a, a bias of what people see in the news or, or read about, but I, I would like to have a bar conversation with somebody about that too, like you were saying. Yeah. Like, I wonder if it's psychological, like a fear of new technologies, or it's one of those, it's one of those crypto is one of those subjects that everyone has an opinion of, on yeah. and uh you kind of fall in one camp or the other it's just one of those devices divisive subjects and it's we hope people can read between the lines with when we put out our crime report and think wow it's kind of powerful that one data set can look at all of these different types of criminal activity and look at every single what we call path but it's basically transaction history that's feeding into those addresses and then ask where are all those funds going going to and there's just a lot of potential to fight crime with this data set that um that yeah it's kind of a read between the lines thing but i definitely hear you that that we are hammering this in the media and there's a lot of negative publicity on crypto which is probably feeding into the narrative a little bit yeah yeah i think so unfortunately um All right, let's let's jump into some of these different categories and and again just sort of set the context. Um in 2022 at least crime as a share of all crypto activity was trending down. So let's keep that in mind. Um it's probably a, you know, a function of the bear market as you guys note in the report because, you know. It actually was sorry to interrupt. It was actually it did trend up this year. So Oh, in in 2022 it was. Yeah, the share associated with illicit activity um, was 0.12 in 2021 and 0.24 in 2022. So it's okay. it's a small amount, but it did that was a reversal that we saw. Okay, okay, thanks for that correction. So I would be remiss if we didn't start with pig butchering scams because how can you how can you not go right for that? So 
I don't think many people listening to this know what a pig butchering scam is. Kim, can you um, just kind of give us the overview of, of what that entails? So pig butchering specifically is a type of scamming approach, how you go about carrying out a scam. It's not a, it's not referring to like your, anything related to pigs at all. And <laughs> yeah, it's a metaphor. So people. It's a metaphor and it's actually quite a crude metaphor. I think there's been a lot of resistance internally to using, using it, but it basically, I think it means, you know, you fatten up a, a pig for the slaughter and when, and how that applies to scamming is whereas in, there have been many different waves of scamming in crypto that have been kind of consistent with whatever period of time we are in, in the adoption curve. But right now, and immediately before this, we saw a lot of investment scams where people would just, there would be a, a, a website and it would say, hey, double your crypto every 30 seconds forever. And people would invest in that. They'd kind of go find the website and they they just take it upon themselves to 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 do this. Of course, marketing was a part of this. But during the bear market, scams really trend down. In fact, it's one of the most, um, it's one of the most biggest, it's the main crime category that actually moves with the market when you compare it to other types of crime, which are pretty much what we call price agnostic. So as scamming has gone down, we've seen scammers being forced to adapt by adapting this um, pig butchering approach where rather than just waiting for people to come to them, they'll be really proactive in finding their victims. They will reach out to people through a variety of ways. Romance scams is one of the biggest types of pig butchering where someone will create a fake relationship with someone and lure someone into a feeling that, hey, this is my maybe my relationship. And then they'll ask for crypto and then they'll kind of go go MIA. And and scammings is also scam is also one of our biggest types of criminal activity. Over five billion dollars scammed in 2022, which was down from 10 billion the year before. So this is a a lot of money is going is still going to these types of scams and increasingly pig butchering is a is a part of that. Yeah. It's sort of like um catfishing, right? Or something where, you know, you're you're just leading someone along for a long time um online and then kind of pulling the rug out from under them at the end. Um I was really interested to read in the report that, that there have this Law enforcement is sort of adapting to this a little bit, or, or at least um, you, you mentioned this, and this is a mouthful. It's the California Regional Enforcement Allied Computer Team. Uh, REACT is the acronym there. So they're investigating these scams. They're, um, they're up in the Bay Area in California, and you've got, uh, you mentioned the, the Santa Clara County DA, Aaron West. And as long as these have happened in their jurisdiction, um, they, 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 as you report, there's been some success at getting some of the funds back. Uh, is that correct? And can you kind of tell me how, how that's, how, how does that happen? Yeah, this, the, um, the react team has been extremely proactive and leading the way in realizing, Hey, let's go from reactive to proactive. Let's really start investigating these types of, of scams and have actually come to us and asked for ideas on how can we how can we help how can we help here and um what we do when and this is another kind of read between the lines thing but when you know exactly where crypto is going it's always 
by and large, criminals want to find an off-ramp where they can convert their crypto to some sort of fiat option so that mm-hmm. then they can go, you know, use it and deposit it in their bank account and do whatever they want to do with it. And crucially, when it hits a service, that means that those services typically have regulatory obligations on collecting know your customer information on who these individuals are. But also, if you alert a service that illicit funds have flown through your exchange, then you can either freeze the funds if you're fast enough, or if the KYC credentials are not faked, you can initiate a law enforcement investigation and hope to to get those funds back through through the legal process. Yeah, and um, as you guys wrote about, a lot of times law enforcement or or other people won't learn about this until weeks or months after it's happened, and by then it's way too late. So I I can see how if a romance scam is involved or or you know an investment scam where you feel like oh I was God I was such an idiot, you know it might be hard to admit that. But if anybody's listening and you do get scammed like this in the future you know it's really important to try to react immediately right because the money you know that the, the trace could still be there and you you might have a much better chance of getting your funds back um yeah and i'll just say one other one other reason why it's important to get law enforcement involved is a lot of times these scammers are actually connected to many other scams mm-hmm. and are doing this systematically and and so getting more information about how the funds are moving means that you can have a real impact at shutting these big operations down and so that's another that's another kind of motivator is 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 stopping these scam networks yeah in their that's a great lead into my next question um but i did want to say just one last thing on the, the romance scams um which pig butchering is a part of i, I found it interesting that that those are the largest scams per capita um, based, you know, like it, it, you list yeah. other types. And so around almost an average of $16,000 was, was taken from folks in those types of scams. Um, so it's- so they're, they're definitely high value. I saw a um, million dollar romance scam this year uh, and their, um, their investment scams might take lower values, but in romance scams, definitely, definitely they can get away with getting more from the yeah. victim. So that leads into like what you were saying where these sometimes there are these concentrations or networks of scams and and one thing I found really fascinating in this in this report was how you guys started with um the CF the Commodity Futures Trading Commission had come out and was uh charging five different scam sort of websites I guess uh or or operations um and and so what you guys did was you took those five um, websites and you looked into them. And um, I think this, it, I'll just try to get this right. But I think all of them had uh, an address that was common in Los Angeles, right? And that was sort mm-hmm. of a lead where you're like, okay, well, they could be using a fake address or they could be kind of stupid. And they're you know using the same address uh, for these five different things, uh, five different scam operations. But then... So you guys, um, you you could you sort of verified or or found on your own the websites and and crypto addresses for three of those five, and you sort of started from there, and then after doing some pretty smart, uh, you know, website analysis and and searching, 
for for things on this on the wider web um, where you use the same sort of copy that that these three sites had used and and other um, elements you guys were able to to uncover 200 more uh, scam sites that were basically looked pretty much exactly the same uh, and I, I just find that fascinating can you kind of did I get that right and is what else is there to fill in on that yeah you did and this is just one example of employing open source tactics like that to be more proactive and find more scam leads. We, um, you can also analyze the, the transaction activity of those sites. And we were able to further confirm that they were operated by the same uh, bad actors because of confirmations and overlap in the transaction networks, you know, follow the money. And that gave us further confirmation that these were connected. But you can do this in a variety other, of other ways as well. And one thing we know about scams, and we actually know this to be true in DeFi as well, is it's pretty easy to create a new scam or, you know, not saying DeFi protocols are scams, but or just launch a new smart contract by just kind of copying and pasting some, some yeah. core code. And in the case of scams, just copying and pasting your underlying website and then launching a new website and that looks the same, but it's really low cost to carry out the attack because you've just basically changed the name and we're able to relaunch your attack and we can see these scammers. Okay. They they'll do one scam. Okay. They shut that down. And then another one pops up with kind yeah. of like basically the same website and the payment networks are connected. And I think it's just because these scammers are just scaling these scams at such fast rates. They don't like take the detail, the the time to like, oh, edit the language or edit the edit the the addresses. They literally just copy, paste and relaunch and go for it. And that's what we do when we exploit that at Chain Analysis. Yeah. yeah, fascinating. I love that. Um, also, it, yeah, it reminds me of the ICO boom where people were just plagiarizing white papers, you know, and like putting them out to calling it a different thing, but, you know, just using the underlying white paper from some other project and people would just pour money into it. Yeah. And, and this will probably lead into prematurely into the wrong area, but that is bad for um, code quality. If there's a code, if there's a bug in the code that is mm -hmm. uh, managing this this we see this with smart contracts a smart contract it just cascade that yeah. that code flaw and then hackers can look for one code flaw and then any project that forked that code that will be vulnerable to the same they just have to rerun the same tactic and they and they can get in that way yeah i was also really interested i think i'm going to try to find that address in los angeles and go knock on their door <laughs> see what happens <laughs> i'll go with you okay, all right yeah i'll need it yeah well you'll be my wingman um Okay, so then um, another one that people may, may have heard more about uh, it, it bigger, we talked about it, just touched on it, but the sanctions section of your report. Um, so the, the big, you know, so what we're talking about here is it's a treasury, it's a U.S., it's a department of the U.S. Treasury called the Office of Foreign Assets Control. And they basically have been sanctioning people around the world, um, you know, who they think are a jeopardy uh, to national security or, you know, other risks. Um, a lot of times it's individuals. It could be, you know, leaders in Venezuela, it could be Putin and some of his folks in Russia. But in crypto, over the last couple of years, as you guys chronicle in the report, 
there's been a shift from from naming individual actually it was individual wallet addresses right a lot of times it wasn't they didn't know who was behind it but it was like this address is sanctioned um to to now in the last couple of years they're going after entities um and that's that's an interesting shift um i think the first one was blender.io um and then the one that caught a lot of attention um just last year was tornado cash um because the ofac sanctioned the use of a smart contract for uh I, I think for the first time right or i don't know if blender qualified for that um but so basically this is code that's running on the ethereum blockchain and what, what ofac said was you know it's being used by this this hacking group called lazarus and they are as affiliated with north koreans there's been like hundreds of millions of dollars um, that has gone through there that's been laundered and we you know they are alleging that they're using that to help fund the north korean nuclear development program so these aren't small things we're talking about <laughs> um and it's scary stuff but how how have you seen and, and like so now um i think the the sanctions um part of of the crime report and the the, the whole pot has gotten a lot bigger right because um people uh, there's a lot more things that are sanctioned now. Uh, can you just kind of speak to that and what what the trend you're you're seeing there is? Yeah, it's a it's it's they didn't just start sanctioning mixers and services and protocols. They also were sanctioning major services like Garantex and Suex and Chadex, which are uh, based in Russia, and we've highlighted in the past are responsible for a majority of the laundering of ransomware funds. And so this did change the dynamics of our report a little bit. Whereas before this year, we would have said confidently scamming will always be the biggest type of illicit activity. Now, because they're sanctioning services and to be consistent with our past methodology and also consistent with what we believe is the right way to approach this. Now, all of a sudden we have services that are moving billions of dollars that are, have been sanctioned. And so now we are we have to count those funds as illicit. We only count the funds that are flowing post designation for for these services, but it still amounts to billions and billions of dollars and it doesn't seem like this is going to be slowing. So the biggest share this year in illicit activity was sanctions associated with for example post designation Garantex flows, although a big part of that was pop was also Lazarus money, North Korean hacking organizations, which is indisputably should be included there. But it is quite a nuanced point. And as, as this continues, it's going to be a big part of illicit funds in our in in the crypto system. Yeah. And that that's another interesting facet here is that you um, kind of go over three different um, sanctions use case or cases. Um, so Garantex um, was one. That's an that's an exchange in Russia, um, but because it's in Russia, basically the sanctions were enforced, right? So while Garantex is is on the, the OFAC list, and and anyone you know, a U.S. citizen, for example, interacting with them face it, you know, could be in trouble. Like the Russians are basically letting that just go and not doing anything about it. And and I found it really interesting that after the sanction designation by OFAC, their volume actually went up at Garantex. Mm -hmm. They like actually gained market. Um, so, and then to just sort of close the loop here, 
Another one was Hydra, which is a dark market, and they were basically shut down um, when this, their servers were seized in Germany in a joint US-German operation. So their volume went to zero. And then you got Tornado Cash, which was sanctioned and saw a sort of mixed reaction afterward because like, it seemed like, as you guys said in the report, the, the people who are using Tornado Cash for um, legitimate reasons now didn't use it anymore, but criminals still continue to use it because you know they're not scared of of you know running afoul of the sanctions if they're already hacking or doing whatever they're doing to to get those funds in the first place, right? Yeah, uh, I think what you're getting at is the that sanction. I think that there's always been this looming question around sanctions, which is how impactful are they? not just in crypto but in the world how impactful how do you measure the impact of of a sanctioning on disrupting behaviors and the cool thing about with cryptocurrency is we can measure that because we can look at literally what how much money was received before and after a sanctioning event and also what were the what we call counterparties of the sanctioned party what were they doing how did they adapt their behavior and what we're seeing is a differential impact based on what is sanctioned. So uh, typically the best scenario is to pair a sanctioning event with a closure, like what we saw in Hydra. Mm -hmm. But what, what do you do when you sanction a service where in a jurisdiction where people don't care about sanctions? And we see that that has led to continued activity. I think in that domain, we're going to be watching it long term to see if there's if market share is gradually removed over time from services like Garantex, maybe it's a more slow burn impact that we're that we're monitoring. But we're starting to be able to answer these really interesting economic questions because of this data set, which is kind of another cool thing. Yeah. And are you seeing a trend yet or do you, do you need more time and to sort of see how things play out? We're, we're there's still up. There's still Garantex activity that's quite substantial, so we would need to. But we haven't done a full check-in yet, so mm -hmm. it's it's it it it's one of those things that requires like a research hypothesis and project and and um an in-depth dive into many of the data data components. So we don't have a clear answer yet, but we will be checking in again on that. Okay. And one one thing in this um, area that really fascinates me is the Lazarus Group. Um, we say that they're affiliated with North Korea, but, and I don't really know much about them, but I wondered if you did. If, and I don't think that means that they're a bunch of hackers in North Korea. Is that right? Like they're, they're, actually, they're more spread out around the world, but they're just working for North Korea? Or do you know how that sort of, how internally that works for them? I don't, I don't actually know how it works internally. We don't um, deal with those, that side of the investigation at least i don't i think maybe some of our investigators do but obviously a lot of the details of these investigations are top top tippy top secret and so there's not like a free information flow of what is happening and where these hackers are what we look at is what or what i spend my time looking at is the flow of funds and where if you're a hacker how are you choosing to move your funds which services are you using and one of the cool things about the Lazarus group, or I don't know if I should phrase it like that, but one of the one of the interesting things about the Lazarus group is they are have historically for the past, I think since at least since I started doing this in 2017, been the 
first to adapt their laundering strategies to incorporate new technologies to into their process. So they are always using the most effective way to launder funds. A few years ago, it was non-KYC exchanges and where they weren't really asking you for credentials, the industry tightened up. Then they kind of started moving from mixer to mixer. Then they went to bridges. And so they're they're always on um, adapting really fast. And I think one thing is, one hypothesis that I've been seeing is it's because I don't think that they care about getting caught. They only care about getting the funds to a point where they can cash it out. And a lot of these new technologies, maybe we'll figure it out in, in retroactively years later or months later, more about the, the processes they're using to launder funds, but they just want to get their funds to the offer and convert it to cash and then, and then, and then be gone. That's their end goal. Okay. And I think um, if I remember correctly, their newest one is using the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Where there's, um, was that Lazarus doing that um, on the Bitcoin uh, mixer? I believe the big um I think it was a I think they were so they would break they would go from eth over to bitcoin and then bitcoin was uh, it was like a sidechain mixer or something like that that was um being used for the first time uh but maybe I'm misremembering that from the report one of the things that we've been pointing out has been the growth of like mom and pop mixer shops so um that's a good small, business to get into <laughs> yeah and sometimes i'm not quite sure if which ones we've we've named and which ones we haven't but um they're they're what we've what we've seen and what is getting increasingly used are experimental new mixers that have popped up and are not really tested in the way that tornado cash what was tested but they are effective and they get the job done and in a kind of a post tornado cash world there has been a sprint to figure out okay what's who's next which service is next which mixers are next to that are going to be kind of processing more and more of these funds and there's been a little bit of a of a more diverse set of mixers that are processing funds and we certainly know that north korea doesn't just go through a mixer and then hit a hidden off ramp. They go through a mixer, then they go through a mixer again, then they bridge, then they then they go through a mixer, then they use a DeFi protocol. Then so there's there's many layers to this. Okay. And then the ultimate goal is to get the funds to an exchange though. Okay. I just looked it up. It's called Sinbad. Oh um, yeah, Sinbad. Sinbad. So you say it's North Korean linked, but you don't say Lazarus. So it might not be them. But um I found that interesting that that um yeah, the, the Bitcoin chain is being used for that. For the, that's I don't think I've heard of that before. Is that new? I no, there have been Bitcoin mixers in the past. Sinbad is definitely uh, a newer player in the game who's been processing a lot of North Korean funds. Okay. And like I said, there's multi, there's many stages. So the Sin, Sinbad has popped up in one of the in one of the one of the several stages that we've seen. It's more of like there's not just one. It doesn't work like this is our strategy. It's been disrupted. Let's move our strategy. There are kind of a lot of different strategies all happening all at once, mm -hmm. and you have to stay on top of it. And crucially to this process is getting it's kind of a race against the clock when you come to chasing North Korea funds because 
because of how fast it, it started to move, you need to be investigating this in real time. Whenever there's a movement, you have to be the first to figure it out because you need to, the goal is to freeze funds on an exchange. And you can only do that if you alert the exchange in time. And so with what's happened with some of the big North Korean hacks is we've had a lot of success doing that. We've freezed um, tens of millions of dollars related to some big hacks by by like live tracing these funds through the mixers, through the bridges, through everything, and then are able to get that in the hands of law enforcement. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. And that sort of leads into the next section, um, ransomware. So if if you're a ransomware, um, you know, you're you're taking some poor corporation or hospital um, you know, hostage, then you get crypto you need to you need to launder that crypto. So that's what we we're just talking about with the mixers and things, right? Um but the the big sort of note you wanted to make on ransomware was that you guys are finding that victims uh, are becoming less willing to actually pay the ransom uh, over the last couple of years. Um, that's that's really cool. Um, what what do you think is going on there? I think there's a few things happening. Uh, one is better data backups. We've really kind of sung from the rooftops that ransomware is a problem. And ever since Colonial, I think people have realized ransomware is a problem. So people have, um, there's that better- the pipeline? Colonial pipeline? Colonial pipeline, yeah. yeah. Colonial pipeline. And how much um, did they get from that one? Can you just remind us? I forget, actually. It was, but it was a big national security um, issue because of how the ransomware actors went after critical United States infrastructure. Yeah. And so it had that um, national security d component to it. But um, but so there's the fact that there's people have better data storage. Uh, there's also the, something going on with insurance companies where they're um, less willing to pay certain ransoms, particularly of designated ransomware entities that have been actively designated. And so the willingness to pay has gone down. There's also yeah. So you you're yeah. talking about somebody who's on the sanctions list, right? So yeah, exactly. No, you don't want to be list. dealing with them, even though they're extorting you, right? Because you could get in trouble for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that there's also just been also an ethos of of let's not pay these ransoms because it encourages activity. And, and while that is puts a lot of burden on the victim, I think that it is a gradual strategy that has been adopted in conjunction with reduced insurance payout because of sanctions and also the improved data backups. Mm -hmm. But also there's been, not on the payment side, I've heard that there have potentially been disruptions in the ransomware attackers because of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. And maybe some of these bad actors have been kind of pivoting their resources to attacking um, to the Russian war efforts and pivoting away from attacking the United States for ransomware. Although that is more speculative, but yeah. it's just something that has been kind of going around in, in people's discussions of why this is happening now. Yeah. I've Got a good friend here in LA who works for a hospital chain and they got hit a couple of years ago and it was, these guys are brutal, you know, they're like taking hospitals, ransom, you know, hostage basically, um, and like yeah. threat threatening their operating systems. Um, and then yeah. you're talking about how, how like 
on the victim side, it's getting more sophisticated, but it made me laugh in the report that it seems on the ransomware side, it's also getting a little more sophisticated where you guys talk about this ransomware as a service kind of firm mm -hmm. that comes up where that's, you know, based on software as a service where you kind of outsource when you need your software, you know, like capabilities for your, your company. But now you can kind of find these ransomware folks that are like, basically they've got the whole infrastructure set up for you. Is that right? And they'll just like, you go and do your attack and then they'll take a little cut of whatever you get. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's a, they've got business operations. They've got customer service hotlines that you can reach out if you've been attacked and you can chat with them. We've even seen them giving surveys. How did you like our customer service experience there? <laughs> I don't know if that's tongue in cheek or, or not, but um, I think that, I think that these are scaling businesses and you can just sell a ransomware kit on the dark web and bake into the code what percentage of the proceeds goes, goes to the developer of the ransomware. And it has allowed for now anyone can carry out a ransomware attack. And yeah. we've seen. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's been. <laughs> We, we see this in other domains as well, malware as a service, um, phishing as a service, yeah. carrying out attacks you can purchase on, on the dark web. Because, you know, there's scammers are lazy, too. They don't want to have to do all the work. Like, yeah. Yeah, let's outsource some of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next one is basically everything we've been talking about is leading to money laundering, because as you mentioned, if you can't, if you steal crypto in whatever capacity that we've been talking about, but you can't get it out of the system or exchange it for for dollars or euros or whatever yen what's the point right you guys kind of make that um point in the in this uh, report so last year there was 23.8 billion dollars um in money laundering in the crypto uh, sphere that's an all-time high um mostly this happens through um centralized exchanges um so can can you tell us about that uh obviously as we've mentioned Exchanges need to have, you know, know your customer rules and anti-money laundering procedures in place, and they have, you know, security teams. But I guess my question is, how, with that knowledge, like, how does somebody use a centralized exchange to launder money uh, these days? It, it, the answer. There's a, there's many parts. There's many, <laughs> many parts to that question. I think that the first thing to do is to say that. There's it really it's really different based on different types of crime. So one thing with scamming, for example, is scams oftentimes are no one knows that it's a scam yet, and they don't have to go through the sophisticated process of of laundering money. They they tend to by and large just plug directly into an exchange, operate as long as they can, rug money, Ponzi money, whatever they're going to do. Then they find out it's a scam and then um, and then their funds, whatever's left might get frozen on the centralized exchange or they'll get off ramped. But basically, the vast majority of scams are not creating a complex money laundering network. Rather, they're just like living on an exchange as long as they possibly can. Yeah, that's and, a good point. And then you have the post the, the sanctioned funds where those services are getting their liquidity from centralized exchanges. And that's kind of a big theme from this report is that centralized exchanges 
are providing liquidity to some of these risky services that have now been sanctioned. And so there's not complex money laundering services happening for some of these things like Garantex, rather they're just kind of getting their liquidity in kind of a basic way. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. And I'm probably not the right person to talk about 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 that, but that's what's happening with sanctions. And then you'll go to um, ransomware and terrorist financing and and other places where there, you really have to have an on point money laundering game. Yeah. And those are occasionally we will see kind of direct connections to centralized exchanges, particularly if they're um, considered to be. Um, I don't know, maybe someone has an account on them with fake credentials and it's just worked for them in the past, but also we'll see much more likely those those types of activities will be using intermediaries to launder money. And then ultimately, ultimately, the goal is is to get to a centralized exchange. It's just the, the steps that you take to do yeah. so are more complicated on some of these other types of crime. Yeah, because that's how you cash out, right? You, yeah. you got to get the yeah, crypto into dollars or whatever. It was also interesting that you 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 noted um, that there is more um, more DeFi protocols that are now involved with um, the money laundering kind of chain. Um, can you can you say tell tell us why that that is? That is almost entirely driven by the fact that DeFi is the primary um, target for hackers, and so hackers will steal these whatever they can get their hands on if they breach the security systems or if they take advantage of a code exploit. And then they'll be stuck with these tokens that aren't really listed on many centralized exchanges. And so they'll rely on decentralized exchanges, the liquidity pools to swap those kind of long tail tokens. And so it's really a function of, I don't, I, th I, I think it's a function of we're, we're in DeFi land. We've got these tokens. What, what can what are we're limited in what we can actually do to to trade these tokens so they're forced to use some of these DeFi. Pro i don't think there's anything inherent to to DeFi. i just think that it's there sometimes their hands are tied yeah although right. although it does it does come up as well you know bridging from blockchain to blockchain i think is perceived to be a way to obfuscate detection although it's not actually in practice DeFi for being the target of such a great amount of hacking is one of the easiest things to to have um, compliance efforts for because you can just trace through everything. You see every buyer, you see every seller, and you can just move pretty seamlessly from contract to contract following the money. Whereas a centralized exchange tends to be a stopping point because then it goes on to the centralized exchange and you don't really know how they handle the funds and you can't follow it from the to the withdrawal. So there's a lot of transparency with DeFi. Yeah, that's a great point um, on the centralized exchanges. Once it's there, it's kind of um, a black box, right? It's a black box. Yeah, you, then you'd have to rely on a law enforcement investigation or information given to you by the actual exchange itself in order to continue your your investigation. Yeah, but if you, yeah, if like I exploit some DeFi protocol and I've got a million of these coins that don't really trade i need to get them into ether for example and that's where you go to DeFi and you use a dex to trade those into ether and then i can much more easily at least um swap that ether for cash somewhere yeah exactly that kind of leads into a, another um uh, like 
so th this was, I would say, one of the bigger DeFi exploits of the year. It was the Mango um, Mango Markets exploit. Uh, and this is something, uh, you guys uh, use the term Oracle manipulation, which um, I hadn't heard before, which I like. Um, so an Oracle is, is a, it's basically a price, a lot, well, a, a good way of thinking about it is like, how do, you, how do you know what these things are priced at at any moment? And you need an Oracle to give you the, that pricing information. And if you can manipulate the, the, the pricing information, then you can kind of make a lot of money. Um, and the thing that, that I found that, that you guys note um, was that this exploit, somebody came forward and said right away publicly that they, they had done it, and his name was Avram Eisenberg. And um, so Mango was a is a decentralized exchange on the Solana blockchain. And can can you just kind of run us through what what he did, Kim? Uh, to 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 he basically got away with I think about one hundred and seventeen million dollars, according to my notes. Yeah. So what? Um, it wasn't a flash loan what he did, but it was a series of loans that he took out and basically used one of the low liquid tokens as leverage and then you can um, really impact the price of a low liquidity token because it's low liquidity and he was able to use a series of loans to manipulate the price of the lower liquidity assets and then um, and then use those those assets as leverage and eventually cash out and leave with the with um, 110 million dollars by exploiting the value of of these low liquidity tokens specifically the mango token yeah so he basically cleared out like the entire inventory right of that yeah. token, and and it was worth that amount of money um yeah i thought it was really clever um he had a two-sided trade so he was on the, the both sides of one trade where he mm -hmm. he shorted he, he took a loan for something like 400 million dollars shorted the mango token but then was on the other side of that trade where he bought all those tokens so um usually because usually i had to think this through a little bit if you're shorting something it usually would push the price down but i guess since he was there to immediately buy all of those tokens uh it sent a signal to the market that that, that there was a huge buy order so it sent the price up i think he was also buying some of these mango tokens on other uh, other platforms so then the, the price is suddenly way up and he's got a ton of them and then he can use that now like on paper it was 400 million dollars or something he can use that to um as collateral to then like kind of sweep basically all the mango tokens that they had is that kind of how it worked and then that crashed yeah. and and so yeah exactly um it's it's um taking advantage of the fact that these that prices are determined by these oracles and what even is the price of one of these tokens that no one's really buying or selling it's it totally turns market out dependent that, right yeah and um yeah. it's it's similar to what we see in some of these um liquidity pools where there's the prices determined by the ratio of assets in the liquidity pool and so that actually when there's a token that is pretty low liquid you can you you have it would be hard to manipulate the prices of like a bitcoin to eth yeah um liquidity pool because um especially if there's a lot of supply within the liquidity pool but what we're seeing now is and this is by far not the only oracle attack we've seen it was one of the few 
domains where there was an increase in the amount of one thing we haven't really talked about yet is how most criminal activity is down except for a few areas and oracle price manipulation a big subset of that which is flash loans has had reached um all-time highs in this past year so this is a it was it was marginally higher than the year before but still it did reach that all-time high and can you just quickly what's a, a flash loan so flash a flash loan is when basically what happened with um eisenberg in the mango attack it's very it's just a technical difference it's when you just hear flash loans a lot in the industry it's when the the you close out you open and close a loan within the same transaction mm -hmm. and a flash loan attack would be you um you basically carry out the whole oracle manipulation within one transaction and um that so we we had called this section flash loan but then we realized okay not all of the attacks are technically flash loans like in the mango um attack it's not technically a flash loan although the concept is basically similar and um yeah it's it was a it was a we're gonna see he's under arrest now it's getting prosecuted and we're going to see yeah. if this is considered to be illegal or not and i think this is a very exciting kind of legal frontier to be in yeah that's i wanted to get to that because he came out publicly and said hey i'm this isn't i'm playing by the rules here you know i th this is how the contract is set up this is how it works and i just i i followed the rules and i was able to do this um he said it's not manipulation but obviously the sec the cftc and i think the doj uh, think otherwise because they feel like he artificially manipulated the price you know ahead of time to to take his gains um so yeah i i, I agree and I, I remember that flash loan uh there was a board ape that was sold for a hundred million dollars or something that was using a flash loan, but it was all, you know, it all got kind of canceled out. Um, but, uh, when that craze was going on about a year ago, I recall that. Yeah. Kim, this has been awesome. We've taken up a lot of your time. I, I really appreciate you going through this fascinating report with me. Um, can you, um, just let folks know how they can find the report and how they can find you or chain analysis out there, uh, in the, in the wider world. You can get the report on our website. You can just download it. You have to just fill out your name and then you can download the report on uh, chainalysis.com. And yeah, you can reach out, reach out to me if you have any research ideas or I'm interested in all things data. If there's a new data source or anything, feel free to, to reach out. And um, yeah, it's been great to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kim, and keep up the great work. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us, and don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart, with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes.